This morning I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. And if it helps you, Zephaniah follows Habakkuk. Man, there's somebody that says, that'd be great if I knew where Habakkuk was. <laughs> Zephaniah. Zephaniah, and we're going to read three verses from the beginning of verse of chapter two. Zephaniah chapter two, one, two, and three. The prophet says in the spirit of God. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness. Seek meekness, that it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. We're going to end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless us now as we consider his word. Before we go further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us and to speak to us today for Jesus' sake. Lord in heaven, now we would pray that you will let this word that we're going to consider today be used of the Spirit of God in our hearts to draw us to the feet of Christ may be used as that power that in truth opens our hearts delivers us from ourselves may we hear the voice of our God in your word today and Lord, we would pray that as we hear your voice, we would pray that that would do a work within our hearts. Lord, we pray that you will not leave us to ourselves, but you will give us the help of the Holy Spirit to truly come and give ourselves afresh to our God, to walk with thee, to love thee, to serve thee, to worship thee. Lord, we pray that you will do this even for the sake of the Lord Jesus, who is worthy. Though we pray it then in his name and for his sake. Amen. If I were to take a verse as our text, it would be the third verse of chapter 2, where it says there that we are to seek the Lord. There's a reason why the Lord has that admonition in this particular place in this book. And we'll discuss that in just a moment. But I want us to think on what I am calling in my title, what God's love makes him do. Because I think in that sense you have, in that answer to that, the entirety of the book of Zephaniah explained. Now, 
Sometimes messages that are preached are derived from a single verse of Scripture, a single phrase, or even a single word. At other times, the best understanding of the mind and the truth of God is discerned by considering a section or a chapter of Scripture. Then there are times that the message that God would have his people to understand is derived from the entirety of the book considered all as one. And certainly, when that is the case, the consideration of the scripture in the best possible way and for thought come from a host of different parts or verses in that book. Now, Although there are many that would subscribe to just one method of approaching the word for preaching purposes and for reasons that may be well to identify, I believe that there is a place for the consideration of the scripture in any and all of these fashions. And for this reason, I'm going to leave my comfortable way to relay a message and attempt a method I am not sure that I have ever really tried. And that's to consider the entirety of a whole book. So this morning I am going to preach to you from Zephaniah. Choose any verse. It's all going to come together to have one message. Zephaniah. Now I'm going to start by asking two fundamental questions because I think these are very important for us to ask and to understand. Number one, who was Zephaniah? And the second, to whom did Zephaniah bring his message? Two fundamental questions that we have to answer. And I say it is critical to understand the answers to these questions if we are going to truly understand the nature of this book, of this prophecy, of this admonition of the Lord. So let's begin by answering the question, who was Zephaniah? Well, If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you have Zephaniah's lineage before you. It says that he was the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, who was the son of Amariah, who was the son of Hizkiah. Now, it is believed by most that the name Hezekiah is derived or is a shortened form of the name Hezekiah. So if we might take the scripture as referring to the Hezekiah of Isaiah's prophecy, King Hezekiah, that would then make Zephaniah the great, great grandson of of Hezekiah. Though he was not in the lineage of the kings, he was of that royal line. To consider it another way, if you read later in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says that he wrote in the days of Josiah, who was king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. To look at it another way, you might put it this way, that it is likely Zephaniah was a cousin to King Josiah. He was then part of the royal family. And certainly one to be found among the court of 
Josiah and numbered among the princes and courtiers and elders of Judah. And as such, you'd have to say, this man then was privy to the happenings of the royal court. And certainly his voice would also have a resounding tone to it when he would speak the words of his prophecy in the ears of the king and his court. Now, to develop this thought, we might suggest a reading of 2 Kings chapter 23. You say, what happens in 2 Kings 23? Well, it recounts works of Josiah. Perhaps if you were to give a few minutes and look through that, you'd see that Josiah was a king that was a reformation king. He was one who was to do away with many of the ills and the sins and the idolatry that had been practiced by previous kings of Judah. He was a good king, putting away much evil. And you would read also that in that day that Josiah was to reign, he gathered together the elders and the leaders and the princes of Judah after hearing the recovered law by Hilkiah the priest, the law was read, Josiah and those that are with him give great heed to that. And so he, Josiah, orders a widespread reformation of the kingdom. And it says there in Second Kings 23 that all sorts of idolatry, evil worship, immorality, the perverted of the land, the places where apostasy was exercised, these were all dealt with by Josiah. And I would suggest to you then, given the nature of the relationship between Zephaniah and Josiah, that Zephaniah probably then would have been in the front of the line of those that heard what Josiah was doing and would have been a part of the program of cleansing the land. Yet, here is the amazing point. And I want us to hear this well. In the very days, in the very days that Josiah is reforming the land, Zephaniah brings this incredible prophecy of judgment, wrath, God in terms that are seldom heard the like anywhere in scripture. These words that Zephaniah brings ring with divine judgment. Oh, you'd say, well, how can this be? How can this be? Josiah is changing the, the whole of the land. How can then the Lord offer such a ringing condemnation dreadful fearful well here's the great point the terrible judgment was to be brought upon the land of Judah in a way that's almost unthinkable not because the people were in outright heathenism I want you to see this please see this the people were not in outright heathenism 
but it was brought because while they said and acted out the righteous cause of Josiah, they were at the same time practicing great evil. You say, what? Yes. I believe that is true. They were going along with the king, saying yes to all the right things and no to all the wrong things. Yet the only one who is truly seeking God's righteousness appears to be Josiah. He, as king, had a heart that was for his God. Those under him were paying lip service. These people were God's people, but in name only. They were the cleansers of the land, but in name only. May I put it to you another way? They were politically in the right party. But their hearts were filled with the evil ways of the wicked. You know, this was not something that was just unique to the day of Zephaniah and Josiah. In fact, the prophet Isaiah comes to Zephaniah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah, in Isaiah chapter 29 and says essentially the same thing. He may not have said it directly to him, but it was in the days of Hezekiah. In Isaiah 29 verse 13, Isaiah says, Wherefore the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore behold I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. It is interesting. In fact, I think it is noteworthy that in the whole of the book of Zephaniah there is no mention of the reformation that's taking place under the leadership of Josiah. The Lord does not mention that. Now I have read some who say, well, that's because Zephaniah brings this message before the Reformation takes place. I don't necessarily see that because then that would make then what the Lord says in such strong terms of no effect. If the Lord says, I'm going to do this to the land, which he does do eventually... And then you have Josiah doing a reformation. What God just said he was going to do would be set aside. No, sir. God did do what Zephaniah says will be done. He doesn't do it in the days of Josiah, but he does it in the days of his offspring. Now, we have to ask another question. Did Zephaniah's prophecy then say that the Lord would no longer love his people? Now, here I want you to hear me well. Did Zephaniah's prophecy indicate to the people that he was speaking to that the reason God was going to judge in such a way because God no longer loved his people? In fact, I would say this, quite the opposite is true. In fact, I don't know about you. I have 
a hard time when I read through Zephaniah chapter 3 going through it um, at any pace other than a snail's pace. Because Zephaniah chapter 3, especially from verses 9 and following, is one of the sweetest portions of Scripture that you can consider as the Lord reveals His love and what He intends to do for those that are His people. Those are wondrously sweet and precious words. So, why does this book have so great a condemnation and a judgment spoken of? Well, here is the great theme and point. It is because God loves his people that he judges his people. Boy, that doesn't sound to make sense. Because God loves his people so intensely, he will not allow them to stay in their sin. Again, I say this is a hard truth to grasp, but an important one. And we are to consider this. So my proposition to you this morning is simply this. It is the love of God that brings him both to judge and to restore his people. There is, I say, the theme of this book in a nutshell. What makes God do as his love dictates? This is what we're going to consider today. We've got three points. And hopefully they'll be very simple. My, my points don't have subpoints. I only have got one thing that I'm saying with each. So hopefully the Lord will make us to be able to grasp this and remember the first thing I want you to see that is presented here in this book, and you will find it really from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 8. God's love will not allow him to be mocked. That's my first point. Hear it well. God's love will not allow him to be mocked. In other words, God's, God in his holiness, God in his perfection, and God in his infinite love will not allow those that he loves to mock him by flagrant disobedience or by a life of ungodliness. He will judge, and that in a way that will end the problem. I will not let you remain in your sin. If you're going in a way that is ungodly, if you're going in a way that's tending toward wickedness, if you're going in a way that loves the world, if you're going in a way that disparages my name and my gospel, I will come and I will end that. These people, the princes and the elders of Judah, were involved with the work of cleansing the land. They were all involved with it. Josiah could not do it single-handedly. You say, what, 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 what are you making out of that point? Hear this. The apparent conclusion of any who would look on the cleansing work that was being done in that day would have concluded that here is a day of great revival taking place. We're seeing some real moving today. 
Look at what's happening. We're seeing things being reformed. In fact, the question might be asked, how could you consider it other than a great revival when you see so much outward change occurring? You cannot deny but that there is blessing here. Well, let me say this. Men judge by what they see outwardly. They always have, and they always will. Yet here is a prime example of the falsehood of the apparent and the displeasure of God on the secret. People doing. What were these courtiers, these princes, and those? them doing what was so bad that the Lord says of them what he does in chapter 1 verse 3 now there's a verse you want to note chapter 1 verse 3 I will consume man and beast I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked and I will cut off man from the land saith the Lord boy that is a terrible work to be done what was so bad, though? Well, let me give you a short list of what these people were doing. Perhaps behind the back of Josiah. One verse three says, God associates them with the stumbling blocks of the wicked. In other words, idols. In fact, if you have a marginal reading, the word stumbling blocks may be there uh, offered as the word idols. These people were involved with the worship of gods who were no gods. You know, this sounds a little bit like a future day that is referred to in the book of Revelation. Maybe you've read through Revelation uh, or are reading through it right now in your McShane reading schedule. In chapter 2, verse 14, you have the Lord speaking to one of the churches and he says to them, But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block, same word, stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. There was the practice of Balaam going on, where men do things for gain, for pleasure for immoral reasons that's what these people were involved in chapter 1 verse 4 says they worshipped the host of heaven and made oaths in the name of Malcolm now who was Malcolm well in other places in the scripture the name is presented as Milcom M-I-L-C-O-M Milcom was known as the abomination of the Ammonites. He was an Ammonite god. He was a god to, for whom Solomon built an altar. Solomon had many strange wives, some of them being Ammonites. Solomon then built them an altar so that they could worship their god. What is sort of strange is that the word Milcom, the words 
or the letters M, L, and K are the root for the Hebrew word king. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, is derived from that same term. Melchum. They were worshipping and loyal to a false king, a false god. Indeed, you have here the apostasy of Solomon continued. And you can just hear these people saying, well, you know, worshipping Milcom, uh, Solomon was okay with that. What's so bad with it? I mean, we're, we're, yes, we'll worship the Lord, but we're also involved with this other thing. They were those who were in apostasy. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 6 says that they turned back and inquired not of God. In other words, they turned to God, or turned to idols, and were very much okay with it. They ceased seeking the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 9 says that they filled Josiah's house with violence and deceit, meaning treachery. You're starting to get a catalog here of very, very grievous evil that was being done. Chapter 1, verse 12 says they dismissed God as useless. Dismissing God. The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. We don't have to fear God. Who is God? There is no God. You don't have to worry about that. The point is that these were saying that they were the Lord's and doing the Lord's work, but they were filthy, fleshly, immoral, and wicked. And the Lord speaks to these princes. Again, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests And it shall come to pass in that day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. You say, why are you bringing this? Here's the point that you and I need to heed. You can be heavily and outwardly involved in what appears to be the Lord's work. And be as filthy as the world. And you will not get away with it. There's the point. When you say you belong to the Lord Jesus and you live like someone who is not the Lord Jesus is, you will not get away with it. That's the message of this prophecy, of this book, of your God. I will not be mocked, says the Lord. You may say that you're involved, but you're going in a way that's not the way that God would have you to go, and he will make you answer for that. You will not get away with that. Why not? Why not? Why can't I get away with it? The answer is because the Lord loves his people. He will not allow such filthiness to remain in his people. He will work swiftly, and he will work ferociously. G. Campbell Morgan in his small commentary on the minor prophets in considering this whole first portion of the book of Zephaniah says this. He says, 
Zephaniah terrifies me as I begin to read him. As I read those searching awful things which he says and see the way in which he tears the veil from the sin of the people and leaves sin in all its naked awful horror and then pronounces upon it the swift fearful doom of God's vengeance I am startled and afraid. I will say this it is, as, a pe- uh, as a preacher I also have to say this I am afraid because we have preachers who are not afraid for their people. God will not allow us to remain worldly. He will not allow us to remain those who are going off in a a direction that is opposed to his righteous law and his will. He will not do that because he loves us. He will allow chastening to fall upon those that he loves. You might ask, well, how certain is that going to happen? Okay, here's, the, uh, here's another part of the book. Chapter 1, you have the Lord revealing through Zephaniah his displeasure and his judgment that is coming upon these who are God's people in name. But then, after the part that we read as our text, in chapter 2, you feel, see God saying, now, let me give you examples of how I have had to deal with the ungodly. And if you read through chapter 2, you see that the Lord speaks of his sharp judgment, first upon the Philistines, Dagon, and then the, the cities, Ashkelon, Ekron, so forth. Then he says that he judges the Moabites. He makes an example of the Ammonites. He speaks of his judgment of the Ethiopians and then also of the Assyrians. All of these were judged and destroyed of God because of their embracing of evil. You say, you mean... They were practicing witchcraft? No, not necessarily so. But they were walking after the flesh and did mind the things of the flesh and desired to have more and more and more of this world and to the point where it led them, frankly, into utter apostasy and then to the point where they were worshiping devils. My point to you is this. God loves his people. But because he loves, there's no reason that he will allow himself to be mocked by the silly and mindless walking in darkness by those that name him as their God. He will deal with them. Understand that. That is a very strong, pointed emphasis that we find in this book. You say, well, is, it, is this a message you see elsewhere? Oh, of course. Paul speaks of it. Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. For he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So there is my first point. 
God's love will not allow him to be mocked. Understand it well. The second point is this. You find in Zephaniah that God's love will always offer a way back. God's love will always offer a way back. Now that offer is specifically presented twice in this book. God offers a way for the wayward and the wicked to return to the place of healing and wellness. You see it first, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And then again in chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore wait upon me, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord. Until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations. That I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. Even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. You have two invitations. The first one is to seek. The second one is to wait. Now there is not a lot of difference between these two things really. They both admonish the same action, and that is to be looking away from the wicked things that had so completely embraced the hearts of those that said they were gods, and then to turn to the Lord. Perhaps there's an echo here of Second Chronicles 7 and 14. If my people were called by my will turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. I'll hear from heaven. And I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. Both of these verses that I just mentioned to you speak of the fierce anger of the Lord that will be poured out on the wicked. The call of God is to repent that there may be a hiding from the terrible occurrence of the wrath of God. What does that say? Number one, please understand. The wrath of God is coming. It's not just a myth. It's not just a doctrine of the Bible. It's a certainty. God's wrath is coming. And there's only one way to be hidden from it. There must be repentance from sin and a turning to the Lord Jesus. That is the only thing that will hide you in the day of the Lord's indignation. And I will stress to you, it is because God loves his people that this offer is being made to those that have ears to hear. Zephaniah. A book, it presents the coming judgment of God upon the false. Because God loves his people and will not allow them to stand in sin. Second, God all offers a way back. And the third thing I want you to see is this. That even in the midst of what we might call the severest of judgments pronounced in all of Scripture... 
the Lord from chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 20, offers the truth that God's love will always be poured out. What a wondrous contrast here. You know, God oftentimes offers comparisons in Scripture that are equal in weight and intensity to prove his point. Here in Zephaniah, you have the judgment of evil that is, the only thing we can say is that it is unspeakably terrible. It is immense and intense. Nobody knows it. But on the other side, equal in intensity, you have presented to you the unspeakably wonderful love of God that is to be poured out on those that love him. You know, the scripture says, I hath not seen, neither ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. Sometimes we, being as materialistic as we are by nature, think that means that God has prepared us this great mansion, this great lifestyle, if you will, in heaven, that we're just going to, great, you know, this, this what, what could be better than what I to experience? You know, I'll have my cottage in the corner of glory land with my dock and my boat and my fishing rod. I mean, this is just, whatever it is our silly minds come up with. I don't think it has anything to do with that. What I think is this, that you and I have no idea how infinitely wonderful the love of the Lord expressed to us from his heart to our heart will be. You have no idea. It hasn't entered into your mind. Your eye hasn't seen it, nor you've heard it. God has prepared for his heart to show you of his love in that day when you are with him. Though in Zephaniah chapter 3, you have a bit of an idea. A small bit. Chapter, or verse 14, chapter 3, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. Who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. How does that happen? Well, read down in chapter 3 to verse 17. Again, one of my favorite verses in scripture. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I've preached on this verse many times. I've expounded it many times. I'm not going to go through that again. I would just point out to you this. How does this deliverance, how does this repentance, how does this whole thing work? That my heart is changed, that be hid from the judgment that he speaks of, and that I would have pronounced over me those very words of 
verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. That I will have all my ways and I will be hid from the Lord and I will be safe. Enjoying the things of God. How does this happen? In the middle of verse 17 you have the answer. He will save. He will save. Do you understand then? Here's the other part of the, the message. God will not allow his people to remain in sin. His love will bring him to the place where he will chastise so that that will prove to be an end of the matter. You can't continue in sin and belong to the Lord. But likewise, you can't be the Lord's without his working in you by his grace and his mercy to bring you to the place where when repentance is known, you will be secured of all the things that he plans to bring to you in his love. And again, I, will under, I want you to understand this, that the true restoration, the true reformation, again, Josiah's reformation was something that people were saying, this is great. God is talking about his restoration and his re- reformation of what will be taking place in the hearts of his people. And the extent to which there will be satisfaction is not to be gauged by those who receive it. You and I are not going to get to heaven and say, oh, this is wonderful. I am satisfied with what the Lord has done. When you get to heaven, it'll be rather, God will say, I am satisfied with what I'm doing for these. There's a difference there. (laughs) There's a massive, massive, infinite difference there. God will be pleased with his reformation, with his restoration, with his his deliverance point that he will rejoice in fact it's going to cause him to sing how is this done because the Lord in the midst of you will save and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin Do you understand that in all this, you are completely, utterly dependent upon the Lord Jesus? What is your place? What do you do? Turn. Wait. Come to the feet of Christ. Your repentance is to be at the feet of Christ. When that occurs, he will change all things. He will deliver. He will remove. There are echoes of the various prophets through others of the prophets. I think they were somewhat familiar with each other's workings or writings. Here's a bit of an echo here to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord, for her warfare is accomplished. Yes. Zephaniah has the same, the same wondrous message. So again, what preach? Number one, You can say you belong to the Lord. You can say you're involved with his work. You can say that you're in the middle of a great revival. And you can be living for the world just as much as those who would be idolaters are. 
And God will not allow that to continue. He loves you if you're here. He's not going to let it continue. But he does offer a way back. And when we are those who heed his word, when we are those who turn our hearts, what we find as a result probably is all that our soul longs for in this life anyway. Small book is Zephaniah. Huge message. And one that I hope that we'll all take to heart. How to go deeply into our own souls that we might be those that in with the Lord in chapter 3. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless your word. We pray that you will allow it to be that which does do a work in us that leads us to the feet of Christ, makes us to be those that are not going to allow ourselves to go that way that is after the workings of the world but that we will find that our peace and our joy and our contentment and all the things that thrill our soul are found with you. Lord, I pray that you will continue your work then. I pray that you will touch every heart in this room. I pray that you will allow all of us, every one of us, to have that restoring, reviving work within us that makes us completely belong to Christ and useful for his name. Lord, bless now thy word. Keep us before thee as we walk through this day, we pray all in Jesus' name and for his sake.